Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career path. My name's Shad, and I'm an MD and a Harvard MBA interested in healthcare investing and innovation. And my name is Alex. I'm an MD and a Harvard MBA interested in healthcare investing and entrepreneurship. Our guest today is Dr. Lindsay Harper. Lindsay is an associate professor of OBGYN at Texas A&M College of Medicine. She's a fellow of the American Congress of Obstetrics and Gynecologists and a fellow of the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. She has been named Forbes Top 53 Women Disrupting Healthcare, People Newspapers 20 Under 40, a top innovator in North Texas for 2020, and a Dallas Business Journal Top Women in Technology honoree. Lindsay is the founder and CEO of Rosie Wellness, a sexual wellness app that started in 2019, which connects women who have sexual health concerns and with hope, community, and research-backed solutions. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path. Thanks so much for having me. Great to reconnect and really glad to share some time with y'all today. Absolutely. And you know, I've been telling Alex that I've been looking forward to this episode for quite a while since actually I met you a little over a year ago at the Harvard Business School Conference. We were sitting next to each other for the networking dinner and it was such a lovely conversation and you seem so incredibly, incredibly passionate about what you were doing. And I've been sort of following your and Rosie's progress over the last year and amazing things are happening to y'all. And so really, really excited for you to come and join us and, and share your experience as a physician, as an entrepreneur with our audience members. Just to sort of start us off, first of all, uh, Lindsay, congratulations on recently winning the Digital Health Rising Star Award for Consumer Wellness. Uh, yet another award for you and your company in a, in a long list of awards that our audience members listen to in our intro. But we would love to start from the very, very beginning. We'd love for you to share a little bit about your childhood, why you decided to go into medicine and why you eventually decided to go off the beaten path. Yeah, thanks so much for that. Um, You know, my childhood, I think that is such a fun question. I think I've only ever been asked that one other time on a podcast because it is interesting to think about how that, you know, shapes who you are as an adult. Um, But from the time I was little, I always wanted to be a physician. And I really don't know, you know, how, how one, how a five or six year old arrives at that conclusion other than that I thought it was, you know, a job that a smart person has. And I also think that it's a, or a thought (laughs) that it's a job that provided, you know, some security for a family. Um, And I've always loved science. So I don't know that I knew I loved science when I was five or six, but like, I'm automatically always drawn to it. Um, just because it's cool. Like what's cooler? You know what I mean? I don't know. And I'm truly fascinated and have so much just like wonder about the human body. And I try to, you know, talk to my kids about that all the time. I'm like, isn't that amazing that you grow another human inside your body and like it works and can function independent? Like it just blows my mind, honestly, the way that all of the systems and the way I used to describe it to my patients is literally billions of things have to go exactly right, you know, for this to be the outcome. And I just think that's fascinating. So Um, that passion really grew over my, you know, time as a student, um, in college, there was really never any plan B. I remember my grandmother who was of a much older generation and a sweet, like well-meaning woman. She was like, well, Lindsay, what will you do if you don't get into medical school? And like, I could feel the heat like rise and, and flame out of the top of my head. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And she was like, well, maybe you should consider going to nursing school. And I was like, 
well, why? You know, like it just never occurred to me, never crossed my mind. I didn't want to be a nurse. I definitely want to be a physician. Um, And those are, you know, that's just an incredibly like different career path to me. And I I was like, well, if I don't get in, I guess I'll just apply again. I don't know. There's no plan B. Like, this is what I'm doing. And I never, you know, I think that y'all have very obviously strong business and entrepreneurial backgrounds, but that was not on my radar at all. I thought that I would practice medicine forever. Um, I love it so much. And I truly love, as much as I love the science or maybe even more, I love patient care. I love, you know, being one-on-one with other women and really sharing very special and personal moments because I think it's such a transfer of trust and vulnerability. And I just really honor and I try to really honor and receive those moments with the respect that they deserve. And I think that that sort of is a peek into the window of, of why Rosie, which is that, you know, and we'll I know we'll get into that, but I think it, it, it exemplifies and, you know, even... Uh, you know, brings to life one of those moments that is so important and vulnerable and trying to sort of solve for those, you know, emotions that women can have whenever their their problems and um, concerns aren't addressed regularly and aren't brought to light. So a bit of an evolution for sure. Um, but maybe that's a little peek into how it all got started. Yeah, absolutely, Lindsay. What a fascinating answer. Even how you sort of talk about your childhood and, and your love for science. It just sort of oozes wonder and amazement and passion. And I was, you know, ashamedly thinking about what I was doing when I was fine. I was playing like Pokemon and like yeah. playing like cricket and that's outside or something. That's because you're way younger like, than me. <laughs> I was playing like but, strawberry shortcake. So that tells you how old I am. <laughs> no, I just, I absolutely love that story. And I, and I imagine some of that awakening also happened when you decided to, to start Rosie in the entrepreneurial realm, which is exactly what I want to talk about next. Because uh, again, like the, the story of Rosie and, and the story of how you've taken it to what it is today is really uh, an inspiring one. Um, but let's start with some understanding of, of sort of the baseline. According to uh, a consensus statement from the fourth international consultation on sexual medicine in 2015, and based on a few available community studies, it appears that, you know, quote, sexual dysfunctions are more prevalent in women compared to men. And nevertheless, studies indicate that women's sexual health domain is underserved, massively so, while the domain of sexual health is perhaps more well addressed in men with the existence of drugs, procedures, management techniques, counselings, things like that. Obviously, reasons can vary, and, and maybe you can get into some of that disparity, but that poses two points. First, that half the population is in need of such services, and so it's an incredibly large market to serve. And given the lack of access, quality, high-quality interventions are really, really needed for these women. So can you talk to us a little bit about the market and the clinical need here and, and how that and other things made you passionate about starting Rosie? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I was in practice as an OBGYN. So as a women's health expert, physician, surgeon, you know, delivered babies, all those things. And <clears throat> I felt really um, equipped to handle most women's health concerns But I don't like whenever, you know, a patient shares with me something vulnerable and I don't have a good response. And that's what was happening over and over with this particular problem. Just sexual health concerns, low desire, sexual pain, trouble with orgasm, trouble with arousal. I was like, wait a minute, why are so many of my patients telling me about these concerns? But yet I don't have literally any idea what to do to help them. And, you know, I had spent two weeks in an erectile dysfunction clinic as a medical student, so I had a much better idea how to manage ED than I did my own women patients. And 
I just thought, okay, well maybe, you know, I'm trying to figure out all the, all the, um, the confounders. Maybe I went to a, you know, residency program where this wasn't a thing and, and it is the, across the rest of the world. Not true. No, this isn't a thing anywhere. <laughs> the second that I thought is maybe I had, you know, self-selected into a population that had really high levels of sexual dysfunction, as you mentioned, 43% of women. So that wasn't true. Or, you know, maybe I was on maternity leave because I had a baby in residency. Maybe I was on maternity leave whenever my, my classmates learned this. Also not true. So the point of that being is that, as you mentioned, this is such a huge need, but there's such a discrepancy between, number one, physician training, but also just general knowledge of these issues, awareness of these issues. I didn't even have a framework to be able to say, I'm going to put you in a bucket, much like we would for any, you know, other medical condition in terms of like, um, you know, the next three steps could be this based on these selection criteria. Like I had none of that even framework. So <clears throat> I started to realize, oh my goodness, like 1.9 billion women in the world are suffering with a sexual complaint. And there is, it's crickets. Like this is potentially the most massive opportunity that is exists in medicine, you know, in terms of an underserved um, condition or set of patients. And I was seeing the effects of that in my office. I was, these women were coming to me, not discussing high blood pressure, like you might, you know, in a very fact-based manner, but these women were in tears. These women were broken. They were worried about the future of their relationships. They were suffering from depression and anxiety as a result of these issues. They were getting divorced, which obviously has major financial repercussions and family repercussions. So it's not the sexual problem in and of itself is worth treating, but I think what we don't acknowledge and recognize is all the fallout of the sexual problem because of the lack of awareness and education um, in our society, in our world. And so I really started to become extremely passionate about trying to figure out how to connect women with the evidence-based resources that do exist because they, they do exist. It's just there's a lack of awareness, a lack of training. And I wanted to create a safe, respectful, welcoming, and evidence-based place to connect women with those resources. And that's really what Rosie's all about. So we are there to augment you know, physicians and other clinicians in their treatment of women's sexual health problems. And we're there to provide patients out-of-office support for really all of their sexual health needs. So that includes behavioral interventions, education, support um, from peers, and also coaching as well. So, you know, trying to create that safe place where we can erase sexual shame and isolation and really solve these sexual health problems. No, thank you for that, Lindsay. That's incredibly inspiring. I just love the the story about how you identified in sort of business terms, like a pain point, right? And and doctors are very, very primed to identify pain points because we work in medicine, which is very, very complex. We work inside hospitals and clinics, which are operationally very, very complex. I mean, you look around the room, there's like four different pain points that jump right up at you. But a lot of us either don't have the time or the desire or the skills to actually solve that pain point. But what's amazing is that you actually were situated well, and if not knew the skills, actually learned the skills along the way to be able to like build Rosie and solve that pain point in, in such an effective way. I, I just think that's incredibly inspiring for our audience members who may have an idea and may even have worked on it, you know, on the weekends, but aren't confident that they can take that next step without getting more formal training. And Alex and I both went to business school, but we've met so many wonderful, amazing physician entrepreneurs who learned on the job or, or sort of learned on the side. Yeah. And I just find that it's 
And that was, that was my experience too. Like literally my very first thought whenever I was thinking, I was like, oh my God, I need an MBA. Like, I don't know what I'm doing, you know? And the thing is, it's like, okay, I could go to school and have a formal MBA or I could get started on this idea. And I think ideas really have a time when they need to be, you know, brought to life. And for me, I feel like if I feel like the urgency around ideas is greater than the need for a formal MBA, if you know you've got something, right? Because I think if you sit on it and wait, there's something that can change with that idea. Other people can, you know, enter the market in the meantime. And and not that I have, you know, all the training that I need, I never will. And that's the great thing about being an entrepreneur is that you're never, you never stop learning. But that I, you know, you can learn as much, you know, kind of getting your feet into the trenches as you can, you know, I think in any other environment. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we'll talk a lot more about that in a little bit. I think the last question that I had from my end is really about how you were able to build Rosie from in Dallas, as I understand, because most of the physicians we've had on the podcast, um, something like, you know, 70, 80% of them have either been based in Boston, New York, or San Francisco. It's the same three sort of locations here in the United States. So it's really lovely to see doctors who are thriving entrepreneurially in other ecosystems. And I know Dallas is, is a very big city. But again, we usually speak with physicians who are in Boston or SF or New York. And so how have you as a physician utilized uh, the resources in Dallas and the surrounding area to make Rosie a success? And, And how do you recommend to other doctors who may not be in one of the two or three biggest innovation hubs to take advantage of the resources that they have in their city and get their venture off the ground? Yeah, you know, I think there's probably two two ways to answer that. So the first is that innovation truly and like the confidence to get started on something in an earnest way is all about your mindset. You know what I mean? And I think that's what those, you know, major innovation hubs offer is you're surrounded by other people who are doing things like you, who you've seen succeed, or you know, you can reach out to for support or to help you, you know, solve a problem. And maybe in other markets like Dallas or, or others, we, we are just not, we're busy in private practice. Like we're just doing our thing. We're not exposed to these ideas on a really regular basis. I got lucky because my husband is also an entrepreneur and that's, he was born that way with that mindset. And he's like, if there's a problem that, and and specifically what he told me that I think is, was really like the spark of all this was like, if there's a problem that you see because of your unique position, that you're in a position to uniquely solve, then that's where, that's where, you know, the, the, all the gears start to work together. And I really felt like I was in a position with this particular issue to, you know, make a big play. And I think when we start to share that way of thinking and that mindset, with other physicians around us and encourage innovation and entrepreneurship, then we can expand those hubs outside of, you know, a geographical location through podcasts like this or through networks of other physician entrepreneurs where we really are there to support one another, to, you know, provide examples of, you know, this is how I got from A to B. It doesn't have to feel, you know, hopeless. Um, And I think that that's how people are able to kind of get started. And I think there's actually unique. I mean, there's, there's definitely challenges to being in places where this isn't as common, but there are also advantages because whenever I am presenting sort of, you know, in a healthcare setting here in Dallas, I promise, you know, there's nobody else doing the same thing we're doing. There's not even very many other women healthcare founders. There's not many D to C 
healthcare, you know, companies in Dallas. So what what it affords us the opportunity to do is really stand out in an environment where maybe in Boston or the Valley or whatever, we wouldn't, you know what I mean? So it gives us a leg up in terms of attention, in terms of potential investment, in terms of um, you know, like the very first pitch competition I was in, we won. And I don't think it's because I'm amazing. I think it's because everything else was like a back end, you know, systems solution. And it's like, okay, we're done. We're like so bored, you know, <laughs> not that those aren't helpful and like investable and important, but I think it's fun to have a little something unique in a market that's not expecting it. What an absolutely amazing and inspiring answer. And I love how positive you are, you know, even in, you know, you mentioned some of the disadvantages of being in Dallas, but there's certainly some advantages of standing out and and making lemonade out of lemons. If that's not truly entrepreneurial, I don't know what is. I absolutely love that positive attitude. I deeply believe personally, and I know Alex shares the sentiment as well, that, you know, talent is everywhere, but mentorship may be a little bit more limited. And that's why, you know, things like this podcast, things like, you know, being able to reach out to people who've done this before and not having to be the first one, having that sort of mentorship can not only just give you the confidence, but can just sort of take some of that pressure off so that you can just have room to succeed. Absolutely. So I, I, I have really, another another thing yeah, I want to add it. on that topic because I feel passionately about this is that I also think innovation is the antidote to burnout. You know what I mean? I think there's so many physicians in practice now, I know there are, who are like, oh my gosh, get me out of here. Like, this is awful. I cannot believe I'm going to do this for another 20 or 30 years. And that's because they've lost all sense of creativity. They've lost all sense of autonomy. They've lost all sense of connection. And I think when we offer the physicians the opportunity to at least provide a platform for innovation or entrepreneurship, it gives them back some of what's missing in medicine today. And it can really just spark a fire that can give them back their energy for clinical care, for, you know, their regular admin duties, while also, you know, advancing medicine. So I think it's really important. It's an interesting idea, I think, to to bring entrepreneurship into medical school training, into residency training, and potentially even into, you know, hospital or administrative, um, more administrative roles, because I think it's like the new research. You know what I mean? Like it needs to be as prominent as research in medicine is. It's We need to be looking ret- prospectively as often as we're looking retrospectively, in my opinion. No, that's an absolutely fantastic point. And and let's not forget that doctors are some of the most hardworking and smart individuals in society who really, really want to contribute. But you're right. I mean, some of that creativity and autonomy gets sort of stamped out of you almost when you're in, in medical school and some of that risk aversion sort of seeps in. And I understand why. Like I was a, a surgeon for a couple of years and you don't want to be taking risks unnecessarily in the operating room because it can really, really hurt people. But I think some of that thriving under uncertainty or, or some of that creativity and autonomy can be put back into the curriculum in a formal or informal way. And I learned a lot of that during my MBA, but I wish, you know, some of that was in in the medical school curriculum. But this has been a really, really amazing conversation on my side. I'll pass it on to Alex for a few more questions. Over to you, Alex. Yeah, thanks, Chad. Thanks, Lindsay. Loving the conversation so far. I was just thinking about the point that you've mentioned on the importance of awareness of success stories and kind of market precedents. If we were to use kind of financial language there, I think that's incredibly important because thinking back about my time, for example, in Syria, when I was doing medicine there in clinical residency, kind of the idea that a medical doctor can do anything else than 
practice medicine was just so foreign to me, was pretty much unheard of. And then when I went to the UK and I've learned that a medical doctor can become an investment banker or a management consultant or an investor or an entrepreneur, I was like, oh my God, there's all this diversity. But it also applies outside of medicine, right? So Shad and I, for example, are hyper-intentional about connecting with, for example, students back from the Middle East or from Bangladesh who are interested in, in applying to, for example, uh, educational opportunities in the U.S. Because similarly to them, kind of, they haven't seen enough success stories and, and increasing that awareness is such a powerful motivator. So I really appreciate that point. So, so Lindsay, you've mentioned the challenges around, for example, uh, managing kind of the, the clinical problems that kind of your practice and Rosie was focused on. And, you know, you, you tackle complaints such as low libido, painful sex, sexual anxiety, etc. And these are really hard and sensitive conversations. And so how do you address this concern and, and kind of make individuals more comfortable sharing? Do you think that your clinical training has helped tackle some of these challenges and I wonder whether the telehealth and digital nature of Rosie provides that additional layer of privacy that is required to kind of facilitate these conversations. Yeah, um, there's so many good questions all in one. So I think that, you know, definitely sex and sexual problems and, you know, all of this is, is very difficult for people to talk about. And the reason is because they don't just like we were talking about with entrepreneurship, they don't have any modeling. They've not seen anyone talk about it respectfully. They've not heard about anyone talk about it respectfully. So it's either silence or some sort of like, you know, backdoor, like, you know, porn type talk, right? So it's not, there's no respectful scientific conversation about sexual health happening for other people to learn from. And I think for me personally, there's two aspects of this. Number one, I've had that training where I'm like, hey, these are really common issues and we have evidence-based interventions and here's how you classify them, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But also I have a, an intrinsic sort of, I don't know if it's a passion or I'm drawn to tough conversations, like being at the bedside of a you know patient who's passing or like that's just something that I have always sort of been and I've been up for, you know what I mean, where other people might not be. I think that that's such a such a powerful place where you can be for a patient that's so unique and no one else is allowed in those situations, you know. And so I think whenever we approach it with that perspective, like with the utmost respect for vulnerability, with the you know best sort of educational background and without any shame of our own, then I think we can, you know, model for others how these conversations can happen. And that's really what we what I try to do in person. And that's also what we try to do in the product um, through the persona of the product, through the visual design, through all the language um, and also through, you know, at all the actual live people who are on the product. We have coaches available and the, all of those people are vetted, you know, very, very um, highly. And also I know them all personally before they ever start so we can make sure that they you know, are a great fit. Um, but the other the other component to this is that. In my experience, people are just waiting for someone else to start these conversations. I was very nervous about pitching this business, about, you know, what would how would people think of me? Like how what would the change of Lindsay's sort of image in the world be after making a stance on this? 
And I mean, it's been not honestly, like sometimes people on Instagram are hateful, but let's be honest, like when are they not, you know, but outside in the real world, that is not the reaction at all. People want to have these conversations. Many women have been waiting decades for someone to start this conversation for them. So it's been met with such positivity and often just tears of relief that you're like, okay, any like anxiety or, um, you know, um, apprehension I had about starting this conversation is over now. And I think once we, and another part of the business is that we train physicians to start these conversations. And I think once you kind of start down that road and have that experience, that's a, that's the same for everyone. Never have I had someone be like, I'm not going to talk about that. Or like, this is awful. Or how dare you? It's always, maybe some people aren't comfortable, but they're not ugly about it. And so I think it's really, a, I think it's a grassroots effort right now. But the more we continue to spread the word, the more comfortable I think everyone will be, um, you know, 10, 15, hopefully 20 years from now. Yeah, Lindsay, that's amazing. Thank you for kind of elaborating on the framework, how to facilitate these conversations. And I was wondering if you can share more with us about kind of your thoughts on Rosie's growth and the advantages that the product would provide uh, kind of in the ecosystem. And how do you think as a physician about kind of protecting that competitive edge? I think for the entrepreneurial enthusiasts out there in our audience, they, they would appreciate your thoughts on this. Sure. Yeah. For us, we have found that our biggest, you know, quote unquote moat um, or differentiator or protector is that is our really enthusiastic healthcare provider sort of support system. So we have ever since we launched, that's actually how we went to market was we told doctors and therapists that we were available, that they could then recommend us to their patients. And so we've always had that, um, you know, that not necessarily end user, but but very powerful recommender in mind when we make any decision. So like we really avoid partnering with brands that don't have clinical data to support any claims that they're making. We make sure that we are very focused on research at every step of the way. So like as, as quickly as we could show benefit from our user base, we were, you know, create uh, pulling that data, sharing that data at conferences. And we've made a commitment over time to really invest in, you know, clinical and, and more on the academic side of research in women's sexual health. There's such a deficit, right? Just in women's health generally, much more specifically in women's sexual health, we have the largest data set that exists in this field, right? So what, how can we use that not only to help us as a company, but also to just help, you know, women's sexual health as a field. And so we've invested in that in many, many ways. Um, and because of that, physicians, therapists, nurse practitioners continue to feel, you know, ever more confident in, in recommending us to their patients. And that's something that's really hard to find, not only in women's health, for sure in sexual health. We uh, Cedar sinai published a, a study that we were the only app that they would recommend for sexual health for their female patients. Um, but it's hard to find in women's health, and it's really hard to find in digital health. I think that we have a very special differentiator with our healthcare provider community. And I think it be, it's because I'm a doctor, right? And I we're not doing anything to step on clinicians' toes. We're not taking any business from them. We are not, you know, trying to be in competition with them. We are instead augmenting um, the work that they're doing in their practice to enhance the patient's experience, to improve her health, and also to loop her back to her physician or, or other clinician when she needs to be seen, you know, for appropriate care. 
Thank you, Lindsay. And I love the point on the focus on evidence and generating that evidence to prove value. I think one of the challenges in the digital health space is that the first wave of products were focused on increasing access, uh, but not necessarily high quality access or evidence-based access. And many of the companies have been stuck really in that phase, especially the ones that don't have the data to prove the efficacy. So I really love the focus on data and the focus on proven clinical efficacy. And con- congratulations on all of that. Um, Thank I you. Think- Of course. The other question that I had, it relates to one of the points that you've mentioned, Lindsay, earlier, where you said that part of your decision to do medicine, and I think this equally applies to all of us, really, uh, was the safety and stability that career can provide. And so medicine is this risk-averse career path. However, the question is, how do we actually increase the risk appetite and encourage the right way of taking risk within clinical careers. So when you started building Rosie, you didn't quit your practice or hospital work immediately. You were building the company while practicing. Uh, You've mentioned previously that this was both an obstacle and an opportunity. So can you elaborate more on that? And to what extent do you believe that staying in the trenches of clinical practice is important, especially in the early translational slash early stages of company building? Yeah, you know, I think this is so tough. And I and I do have a hard time with this because, you know, so many of us come out of medical school with so much debt that really then I feel that, you know, it's like we can't, we don't have a lot of options because we then have to work very diligently for many, many years to even get close to paying that off. And so, you know, I think we do have to be very practical when we're talking about like, yay, entrepreneurship, like literally how are people supposed to pay bills? You know, I think that that's a major concern that we have to take into account, especially, you know, working uh, physician, single moms and things like that. You know, it's like, man, there's just so many, so many barriers. But I do think that there are opportunities. I think the first that I would love to see happen that's very aspirational is if we could build in some some entrepreneurial track to to practicing medicine, right? Like I think that that's the the long term like gold gold ideal. But the in the meantime, you know, like you mentioned, what I did was I did stay in practice for about the first eight months, not not um, when we had launched, but while we were building. And I used to have a clinical day off. I used to have a Monday off. My kids still fondly remember mommy's Mondays off. So my my Mondays off turned into rosy days. Um, And then I would, my partners are like, you know, making so much fun of me because I'm like pouring over everything I can in my office. I feel like a mad scientist with like all my books and papers and highlighters everywhere. Um, And so that was, you know, it was sort of an augment to to clinical practice. Um, But then I, what I found is that from an investment perspective, Nobody's going to invest in a full-time clinician who starts a business. Like that's just not a reality because you have to have, you know, you have to be dedicated to the business. And I can understand that. So hopefully the idea here is to stay in practice as long as you can and then to get to a place where you can start raising money. And then that way there's, there is going to probably be a gap, but hopefully you can shorten the gap between when you leave and when you, you know, get that first investment so that you can then at least have a paycheck. And mine is, you know, <laughs> not what I was making in clinical practice, nor, nor will it be for a long time. That's okay. Um, but I think that, you know, there is an opportunity to try to minimize. And I still work rarely as a hospitalist. So I'm still credentialed. I still, you know, am able to uh, provide clinical care that keeps me on teaching staff. 
I love, I mean, I love that part of my life. I don't miss carrying a pager. Like how in the world are we still carrying pagers in 2022? That's weird. Um, And I also don't miss not sleeping. Like I never, I mean, I didn't never sleep, but I slept a lot less then than I do now. And that is just no way to live. You know what I mean? Like I am not my best self when I'm not sleeping. So um, those are things that I'm happy to have given up. And also sometimes people ask me like, how does, how does, you know, creating a company, being an entrepreneur compare to being an OBGYN? Because it has, you know, both fields, I think, have a pretty <laughs> bad rap because they're both really hard and you both, you have to work really hard at both of them. But I always remind myself, you know, in my, in my job at Rosie, and this is like, I don't mean this to be flippant. I mean this actually very seriously, but no one, there's no risk of death when I go to work at Rosie. And I don't mean for myself, but I mean, you know, patient, when you're involved in patient care, there's always bad things that can happen, whether they're, you know, because that's life, because we're in the hospital dealing with real lives every day. And so when to, I think that that helps me put it into perspective when I'm really stressed, you know, fundraising is never fun. Um, you know, team management is a whole other conversation we could have. Um, but it's never a life or death situation. And I think that that's actually really helpful whenever you're having like a not great day, you know, so there's always there's always a bright side. Lentia, I love the, the insights that you've shared because it kind of encourages the audience to think about entrepreneurship and uh, realistic and doable tactics rather than kind of the the common and, and kind of publicized like hype way of thinking about entrepreneurship. So I really love that idea. And I think to the point on creating entrepreneurial uh, tracks in medicine, I wonder if examples of other countries can be helpful here. I know the UK, they have, for example, the clinical entrepreneur pathway and one of her advisors, for example, her name is Nadine Haram. She's a plastic surgeon in the UK and created Proximy, uh, which is a digital surgery company. So I, I love that idea that you've highlighted. And the other point is, it's interesting to think about having the ability to practice medicine and clinical practice as a sandbox period that allows you to actually refine your idea and kind of progress it to the stage where you can actually take it full time. And I sometimes tend to think about universities in the same way, where, for example, an MBA program can give you this time opportunity to kind of work on the idea, progress it further before kind of seeking large investment. This has been a fantastic conversation. So to finish us off, how can our audience get in touch with you and follow the amazing work that you and Rosie are doing? Yeah, thank you so much. So um, I am on LinkedIn. My name is spelled differently. So check the show notes, Lindsay, L-Y-N-D-S-E-Y, Harper, H-A-R-P-E-R. Also on Instagram, Lindsay Harper, M-D. The company is meetrosie.com, M-E-E-T-R-O-S-Y.com. You can download Rosie by searching Rosie, R-O-S-Y, in either app store. Um, And you can download for free, check us out, kind of get a feel of our, you know, tone and approach and safety. And then um, there are subscription options as well um, within the platform. And then you can also, if anyone's on Instagram, we are at meet underscore Rosie. So we'd love to see y'all in all the places. Amazing. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you so much. This has been so fun. Great to talk to y'all. We enjoyed it as well. Chad, that was a great conversation with Lindsay. I really enjoyed it. And I think there's just so much there. I think my takeaway is around the tactical and practical advice that she provided to uh, medical doctors who are interested in starting a business. 
I think entrepreneurship is overhyped. And I think there's this romantic kind of idea of someone quitting uh, what they're doing and kind of taking this massive amount of risk to start a new company. And this is certainly one way to do it. But the idea is that entrepreneurship can include uh, many risks and it can sometimes pay off to do it in the right risk averse or risk mitigated way. What I mean by that is I really love the idea that Lindsay has highlighted in terms of using clinical practice as a sandbox or as an opportunity to pilot those innovative entrepreneurial ideas that you have and get that early market validation uh, that this is truly a pain point, that this is a solution that people would pay for, and this is a solution that would create value before kind of making the big jump and, and quitting your clinical career and essentially taking the business full time. So I think the advice that she provided, and I think the kind of her own journey was uh, probably a very practical and useful example uh, that our audience can learn from. So I guess those would be my two cents, and I'm going to hand over to you for uh, your reflections. Yeah, I completely agree with that, Alex. I think anything romanticized is probably not a reflection of reality, but I wanted to sort of offer you know, why innovation and entrepreneurship can be so important to physicians. And so one thing that Lindsay said is that innovation is the antidote to burnout. I just found, first of all, it just rolls off the tongue. So I think that's a really nice statement. But I also think there's a lot of truth there, right? Because the rates of burnout have gone through the roof, especially during the pandemic. And I read somewhere that something like 125K physicians left clinical medicine during the pandemic, either early, you know, retiring or just leaving because they were sort of fed up. That's about 10 to 12% of all physicians. And I know the same pain point existed and the mass exodus also happened in nursing, probably in other clinical uh, professions as well. And there's a lot of reasons for this, obviously, but anecdotally, I think creativity and autonomy is something that we as human beings desire. And, and again, I mentioned this during the podcast, physicians are some of the hardest working, most humble and talented and, and creative people that society has to offer. But some of that really gets wrinkled, like just completely taken out of you during your pre-medical career, your medical school and residency and beyond. I remember speaking with a, a cardiac surgeon, you know, six to nine months ago, and he had reached out after listening to the podcast and he told me, hey, look, I was always uh, an artist. I was a creative person. And I really, really appreciated new ways of, of thinking about, you know, old problems. But I don't get to do that anymore in my clinical practice. So I'm completely burnt out and I want to do something completely different. He had a very, very defined and very deep skill set. But his desires were completely different and he just didn't know how to challenge it. And, and he couldn't quench his creativity and his desire for autonomy within clinical medicine. And I think that's just such a shame. So yeah, I think there's multiple ways out. You can increase the levels of creativity and autonomy in clinical medicine through you know, teaching those things during medical school or during residency, or you can give people the opportunity to explore non-clinical interests. And that's exactly what our guest, Lindsay, actually did and did so very successfully. So that, that's my takeaway for this episode. Yeah, no, thank you, Shad. Love that takeaway. And for the audience out there, join us next episode for more conversations with amazing physicians who have ventured off the beaten path. And, you know, remember to follow us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at BOTBP Podcast and to catch our latest episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansoffbeatenpath 
at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. And if you have any feedback, any recommendations, any guest suggestions, please shoot them our way. And until next episode, see you.